I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome uh, to this lovely old room. Um, Paul Oster is a writer who needs no introduction, and yet I'm going to do it anyway. Um, he is one of the great American novelists and author of 20 works of fiction, if we count the trilogy as three, um, uh, including the New York trilogy, The Music of Chance, uh, Moon Palace and Sunset Park. He's a poet, an essayist, a memoirist, a screenwriter, a translator. His latest novel, which many of you have with you now, uh, 4321, is an extraordinary work of fiction, an immersive book described in the press as dazzling, meticulously plotted, uh, heartbreaking, uh, and those of you who have already read it will know what a truly astonishing novel it is. There's a wonderful scene uh, about three quarters of the way through the book where one of the Fergusons, and we can talk about the structure in, the bit, in a bit, arrives in London. And we thought that perhaps to start off, we might have uh, a little bit of location-specific material. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm very, very glad to be here. Um, so there are four Fergusons, which we'll get into later. One of them, at the age of 20, goes to London for the first time. The year is 1967. And um, since I'm here, and so many of you were not alive then, and you didn't really know what London smelled like back then, because it, it's a different city now. So I thought it might be interesting to read just two paragraphs, three paragraphs about, about this. So young Archie has been living in Paris, and he's just celebrated his 20th birthday, and he talks on the phone during the uh, birthday to his mother and stepfather. Uh, and here's the last paragraph of the previous section. Then his mother came on and started talking to him about the weather, about the weather. England was a wet place, she said, and he should remember to carry an umbrella with him at all times and wear his raincoat and perhaps even buy a pair of rubbers to protect his shoes and feet. On any other day, Ferguson would have felt annoyed. She was talking to him as if he were a seven-year-old child, and normally he would have brushed her off with a groan or laughed her off with some droll and acerbic comment. But on this particular day, he didn't feel annoyed but amused, both warmed and amused by the unending motherness that continued to burn inside her. Of course not, Ma, he said. I won't go anywhere without my umbrella, I promise. And there's a little break. As it happened, Ferguson left his umbrella on a train after he arrived in London on the morning of the 5th. He hadn't meant to lose it, <coughs> but in the scramble to gather up his belongings and rush out onto the platform to look for Aubrey, the umbrella had been forgotten. And yes, rain was falling on the city that morning, 
just as his mother had predicted it would, for England was indeed a wet place. And the first thing that struck Ferguson about it were the smells, the assault of new smells that entered his body the instant he left the air of his compartment for the air of the station. Smells that were altogether unlike the smells in Paris and New York. The harsher, more stinging atmosphere, charged with the mingled emanation of damp woolen coats and burning coal and moistened stone walls and the smoke of players' cigarettes with their too sweet Virginia tobacco in contrast to the bluntness of Gaulois and the toasty fragrances of luckies and camels. A different world, everything utterly different. And because it was still early March and not yet spring, a new sort of chill in the bones. He's put up in a hotel, and it's a Sunday, and uh, I'm just going to read one more paragraph, and then we'll do a little talking, and then I'll read again, and then we'll talk again. After Ferguson unpacked, he returned to the ground floor and went into the dining room for breakfast, which was still being served at 10 o'clock, and had his first taste of English cuisine, a platter that consisted of one sunny-side-up egg, greasy but delicious two undercooked rashers of bacon, slightly repellent but delicious, <laughs> two pork sausages, a thoroughly cooked, cooked tomato, and two thick slices of homemade white bread slathered with Devonshire butter that was better than any butter he had ever tasted. The coffee was undrinkable. <laughs> so he switched to a pot of tea, no doubt the strongest tea anywhere in Christendom which he had to dilute with hot water before he could get it down his throat. And then he thanked the waiter, stood up from his chair, and trotted off to the gents for a long, unhappy session with his rumbling bowels. <laughs> so... There was a joke going around the Faber offices earlier that actually this evening I would find myself faced by four Paul Austers <laughs> and that over the course of the evening, one of them each time would get up and walk out in disgust, leaving me finally with the real Paul Oster or a real Paul Oster. Maybe we can talk a little bit because I realise I'm already straying dangerously close to spoilers there. Maybe you can describe the structure of this novel in a way that won't spoil the surprises that are wrapped within it. Well, I'll tell you. It was very important to me to, to make jacket copy that explained the structure of the book because I didn't want anyone to be confused and I hope if any of you decides to read the book, hasn't read it yet, that you'll read the jacket copy. Uh, and maybe I can just read uh, a, a couple of things that will um, make it clear what's going on. Um, so Archie Ferguson, Archibald Isaac Ferguson, is born on March 3rd, 1947, in the maternity ward of Beth Israel Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. Okay. Then the, the copy says, from that, this was written by my American editor in New York. From that single beginning, Ferguson's life will take four simultaneous and independent fictional paths, four Fergusons made of the same genetic, genetic material, four boys who are the same boy, will go on to lead 
four parallel and entirely different lives. Family fortunes diverge, loves and friendships and intellectual passions contrast. Chapter by chapter, the rotating narratives evolve into an elaborate dance of inner worlds enfolded within the outer forces of history. As, <coughs> sorry, as one by one, the intimate plot of each Ferguson story rushes on across the tumultuous and fractured, fractured terrain of mid-20th century America. A boy grows up again and again and again. And that's essentially how the book is structured. So the first chapter is entitled 1.0, and it tells the story of Ferguson's parents, how they met, married, and it ends with Ferguson being born. And then the next chapter is 1.1. We have the first iteration of Ferguson, and then 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, and then 2.1, and so on through seven cycles. And it takes him through all through his childhood into early adulthood. And one of the things that, that uh, when I reviewed this, I compared it to, to Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, which I think is, is one of the models that we might think it does something very different with the structure. But there's also a book that some of you may have read, uh, Adam Phillips is Missing Out, and I don't know if that's a book that you've come across. I haven't read either one of those books. Okay, so yeah. miss, Missing Out is interesting because it's, um, it's about the pleasure of the unlived life, or the, 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 the psychological importance of the unlived life, about all those lives that are marching alongside yours, uh, those who took the other path, uh, you know, obviously Borges's uh, Garden of Fort Parks yes, is yes. something, mm. and the Robert Frost poem, uh, yes. Part. And, uh, I guess, was that one of the inspirations behind it, this idea that there wasn't just one Paul Oster or there isn't just one Alex Preston, but there are all of these other us's walking alongside us that might have been? Well, I've had this feeling all my life, and I think a lot of people have. And don't we all ask the question, what if? What if I had turned right that day instead of left? What if my parents had raised me in a different town? Or what if their work had taken them abroad and I had grown up in another country? Or what if I had been born during World War II and I grew up in an occupied city? Um, all the possible lives that one could have had. And so I play that out just in four, four versions here. But I think the four somehow stands for an infinity of possibilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's only that, that is the, the kind of feeling you, you, you get from it. In City of Glass, there's a character who says nothing is real except for chance. And this book, like many other of your, of your novels, has a fascination with that idea of contingency, of the enormous difference yeah. that lies between very fine decisions. Um, how did you think about this novel when you started putting it together? I've, I've read that you don't plan your novels intricately no. in, in advance, but it feels like a novel that has been carefully planned, if you see what I mean. Well, the strange thing is I've been at this for a long time now. Um, I have been writing seriously since I was 15 years old, and that's, that's um, how many years is that? It's 55 years. It's a long time. And so by now, when I write novels, they're in my body. It's not that I have to sit down and map them out. I mean, I knew already as I started the differences between the Fergusons. 
I knew the psychological shadings and, and the different calamities that would happen to them. But I, had, I never worked things out, as you say, in detail. So there's a, uh, a feeling of improvisation that I think I need. I need not to know. I need to be discovering it as I'm writing it. I mean, the glory of writing is that, of course, you can rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. But I'm, I'm trying to leave myself open to uh, spontaneous ideas that come, it seems to me, only when I have a pen in my hand and when I'm in the act of writing. And so I need to be there at the table with the pen, and then words start to come. Um, but no, I didn't have elaborate charts at all with this. But I guess one of the places that question came from is that one of the only places that humans can live in those two worlds at once is when we are writing. And it seems to me that maybe that's one of, you know, all of the Fergusons are writers. Yeah, in, in one way or another. In, yeah. in one way or another. And about the closest we get to an existence where we are able to live both in our own lives and others is when we are either immersed in a book that we're reading. But I think yes. particularly when we have that feeling of control that you get as a writer. And I wondered if that was, was something that went into the book. Well, there's certainly, um, as the book evolves, I, again, I don't want to give away too much. I think uh, one learns that one of, the, one of the things the book is about is um, what happens when someone writes a story. I don't want to say more than that. But essentially, the book is a story of human development. And uh, when I first had the idea to tell these parallel lives, I thought I would take them much deeper into their lives. And then as I advanced, and I realized that, no, it's a book about childhood and adolescence, youth, and early adulthood. And after that point, if I had gone beyond it, um, it would have taken on a different tonality altogether. Um, I didn't want to write about a person who more or less settled into himself, but a person who was constantly evolving. And I think we are all evolving uh, rapidly, uh, certainly until we're 20, often way beyond that, but, but up to about 20, 22, 23. And then, then most of us seem to um, settle in to being who we are with slight variations and changes as time goes on, but none of the revolutions of, of early life. And I was interested in those upheavals. And, and I guess that's when those minute differences of chance also have the greatest impact, when there's still a kind of plasticity mm -hmm. to the cell. See, I don't think of the... I, a chance is somehow not the word I tend to use these days, but just simply the unexpected. I think if we just use that word, which has a very neutral uh, tone to it, then we, then we don't have to talk about fate and chance, <laughs> destiny, all these big words that ultimately don't mean a lot, uh, but just unexpected events. And as we all know, the unexpected happens with a certain regularity in our lives. Uh, just the mere fact of a physical accident. I mean, how many times have you stubbed your toe? How many times have you banged your head on a cabinet? How many times, perhaps, have you broken a bone? 
Um, and these are things that you wake up in the morning and you're not expecting to do that day, but something <laughs> happens. Or you're in a car crash and you really get badly injured. Or, or someone you love gets badly injured or killed. These are unexpected events. We see it in our personal lives. We see it in historical events. We see it in our political lives. I need to talk about what's happened in both our countries recently. The unexpected is rushing in on us. And I think we have to account for it in how we think about reality. Because it's what I call, it's neutral. It's just simply what I call the mechanics of reality. The unexpected is a factor but it's not the only thing. Um, there is something, both in terms of the size of this novel, and I think also in the way that it sinks you into the Austerian world, and I think quite subconsciously feels in some way definitive or consummate, or, or, or somehow bringing something to an end. Having your characters appear at the L at the end, having people go for a celebratory dinner in the Moon Palace restaurant, yeah. there is something that feels like it brings a lot together. And I was trying to work out what that was as I was reading it, or, or why that was. And I went back to read *The Invention of Solitude* mm -hmm. and saw that your father was 66 when he died, yes. which was the age when you began this novel. Yes. And there's something weird about out outliving your parents. And I wondered if that was one of the things... Well, you, you put your finger on something very important. Um, my father was a man who was in perfect health. He never smoked, he never drank, he played tennis every day. Uh, and then he simply dropped dead, uh, unexpectedly. Another unexpected event. It wasn't chance, but it was unexpected. Okay. And uh, I promise not yes, to use chance okay. again. Um, <laughs> I started this at 66, and what a strange moment that is. I'm sure many people in this room have experienced it. When you get to be older than your parent ever was. And so I was haunted by this feeling that perhaps my moment was coming very soon too, because there's almost something disgraceful about outliving your father, mm -hmm. uh, as if you've crossed some boundary and, and made, uh, committed a transgression against justice in the world. And um, so I started the book, and I thought it would take me five or six years to write this. I knew it would be long. And I didn't want to die before I finished. I know it sounds very melodramatic, but this was in my head as I started the book. And so I consciously locked the door, and I didn't do anything for three years but write the book. No readings, no interviews, no traveling, none of the things authors do, and, and, uh, but I didn't want to do them. And Siri Hustvet, my wife, also a writer, and she's working at a fever pitch right now, a woman on fire with her work. And the two of us um, just have been locked up in that house in Brooklyn working. And we get so exhausted every night, we didn't go out and see friends very often either. We collapse onto the sofa and watch old movies, mostly, and then... Laurel and Hardy? No, not Laurel <laughs> and Hardy. I watched a, lo a lot of Laurel and Hardy on my own, <laughs> because Laurel and Hardy figure in, in the novel, and I wanted to refresh my memory. But, uh, and then up in the morning, and the two of us <clears throat> back to work. And uh, so I managed to finish it in 
a much shorter time than I imagined I would. And so I'm here to tell the tale, as Ishmael says in Moby Dick. And uh, now that I've passed the barrier of 70 a month ago, uh, I'm not thinking about 66 anymore. You know, the, 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 bewitch, the, the witching hour is over. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, one of the stories that shows up in your nonfiction writing um, is the lightning story, the yes. lightning strike story in The Red Notebook. Yes. Um, and there's a, a line in The Invention of Solitude that I kept coming back to, which was uh, the anecdote as a form of knowledge, which I think is really interesting mm -hmm. because in some way it feels like one of the principles behind this book, that this is the arrangement of anecdote and the way that anecdote forms a life. Yes. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the lightning story. Well, I did, as you say, I wrote about it in the Red Notebook, a, a series of uh, true stories that I wrote years ago. Um, and this is the story. And there's no question that it was fundamental in my thinking about writing this novel. And that's why I'll mention it. I was 14 years old, and I was sent to a summer camp in New York State. One day, about 20 of the boys and two of the counselors went off on a hike in the woods. We got caught in a fierce electric storm with lightning shafts coming down very close to us. Tremendous, deafening thunder and pounding biblical rain. It was so hard. Uh, it was scary, and the, uh, the general consensus among the boys was we should get to a clearing, get away from the trees where the lightning would be more dangerous, which in fact is true. And we did find a clearing, and in order to get to it, we had to climb under a barbed wire fence. And we went single file. And the boy immediately in front of me, when he was about halfway under the fence, Lightning struck the barbed wire and electrocuted him on the spot. He was dead. And I was, my forehead was inches from his feet when this happened. He was inert, not at all moving at all, nothing. And I crawled to the side of him and then pulled him through into the meadow. And I had no idea he was dead. I'd never seen a dead person. And uh, I, I thought that he was stunned and would recover. And I sat in that pounding rain and lightning and thunder, rubbing his hands and trying to revive him for an hour. And his face was turning blue and he was most certainly dead. That, I think, was the most important experience of my young life. This idea that anything can happen to anybody at any moment. Uh, life becomes death in a, in, a, in a flash. It's the once solid reality that I believed in as a dim-witted child uh, turned out to be a useless way to think about the world. The world was very precarious, and we were all subject to any kinds of things that could happen. I think it's informed my work. I think my novels, in, in many ways, come out of this revelation of that day but having been haunted by this for so many years, I wanted to address it directly. And as the book evolves, this kind of event, I don't duplicate this death in the novel. Something similar happens, though. Something abrupt and definitive and shocking to 
one of the Fergusons. And um, um, I think without that, that's the autobiographical component. When we talked about this before, that it is not an autobiographical book. But this autobiographical experience lies at the heart of why I wrote it, I believe. Okay. It also feels like, and I, I will definitely steer clear of the autobiographical thing, yeah. but that the writing experience of your last two memoirs, so Winter Journal and Report from the Interior, which are both about youth and death, and, and particularly about the kind of phenomenology of youth, as in what it feels like to be in the body yes. of a young person, that seemed to be... Kind of, and, and it feels like reading this and then reading those that they were in some ways a rehearsal for some of the material here. You're 100% right, and I'm happy to hear you say that. I feel that those two books plowed the ground for this, and that uh, because in writing Winter Journal and Report from the Interior, I was looking at my childhood for the first time in my adult life, really trying to inhabit the skin of a child again. And I found it uh, fascinating territory to go into. And I think it wasn't a conscious decision, but I think having plunged in for two or three years in this other material, it prepared me to do this. And um, so, yeah, definitely these things led to this. There's no question about it. Could we maybe hear a little more? From yeah. That? So now I'm going to do a longer reading. <laughs> of one of the other Fergusons, and then, and then we'll talk again after. Um, this one is um, Ferguson One. He grows up in a town called Montclair, New Jersey, which maybe you've heard of, maybe you haven't. And the year is 1963. He's 16 years old. He's um, had his first love and he's had his heart broken for the first time. He's lost the girl that he cared about, who was a Belgian girl living, living in America. And um, no time to go into that. But here it is, the end of the summer, 1963, and he's feeling a bit lonely. And his father, his father owns a little um, appliance store in town. His mother is a portrait photographer. She has a studio in town. And he's an only child. All the Fergusons are only children. <clears throat> On Labor Day, Labor Day in America is the first Monday of September every year. It's a holiday. On Labor Day, about 20 people came to the house for an end-of-summer barbecue. His parents rarely organized such large gatherings. But two weeks earlier, his mother had won a photography competition sponsored by the Governor's New Arts Council in Trenton. The award came with a commission to produce a book of portraits of 100, quote, outstanding New Jersey citizens, a project that would be sending her around the state to photograph mayors, college presidents, scientists, businessmen, artists, writers, musicians, and athletes. And because the job would be well paid, and Ferguson's parents were feeling flush for the first time in several years, they decided to celebrate with a grilled meat blowout in the backyard. The usual crowd was there, the Solomons, the Brownsteins, the Georges from down the block, Ferguson's grandparents and his great-aunt Pearl. 
But some other people turned up as well, among them a family from New York called the Schneidermans, which consisted of a 45-year-old commercial artist named Daniel, Daniel, the younger son of Ferguson's mother's old boss, Emanuel Schneiderman, who was now living in a retired, retirement home in the Bronx, and Daniel's wife, Liz, and their 16-year-old daughter, Amy. On the morning of the Labor Day fete, as Ferguson and his parents chopped vegetables and prepared barbecue sauce in the kitchen, his mother told him that he and Amy had known each other as small children and had played together a few times, but somehow she had fallen out of touch with the Schneidermans. Twelve years had fluttered off the calendar, and then, just a couple of weeks ago, on a visit to see her parents in New York, she had bumped into Dan and Liz on Central Park South. Hence the invitation. Hence the Schneidermans' first ever visit to Montclair. <clears throat> His mother continued, From the look in your eyes, Archie, I gather you've forgotten about Amy. But back when you were three and four, you had quite a crush on her. Once when we, were, once when we all went to the Schneidermans' apartment for a late afternoon Sunday dinner, you and Amy went into her room, closed the door, and took off all your clothes. You can't even remember that, can you? The adults were, were still sitting around the table. But then we heard you giggling in there, shrieking with laughter, making those wild, out-of-control sounds only little children can make. And so we all, we all got up to see what the commotion was about. Dan opened the door, and there you were, the two of you, just three and a half or four years old, jumping up and down on the bed, stark naked, shrieking your heads off like a pair of crazy people. Liz was mortified, but I found it hilarious. That ecstatic look in, on your face, Archie, the sight of your two little bodies bouncing up and down, the savage joy filling the room, nutty human children acting like chimpanzees. It was impossible not to burst out laughing. Your father and Daniel both laughed too, I remember. But Liz charged into the room and ordered you and Amy to get dressed at once. You know that angry mother's voice, at once. And before you could get your clothes on, but before you could get your clothes on, Amy said one of the funniest things I've ever heard. Mommy, she asked, all serious now and very thoughtful, pointing her finger directly at your privates and then at her own. Mommy, why is Archie so fancy and I'm so plain? <laughs> Ferguson's mother laughed, laughed hard and long at the memory of those words, but Ferguson only smiled. A weak excuse of a smile that quickly vanished from his face. For few things gave him less. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
his pleasure in hearing about the idiotic shenanigans of his early childhood. He said to his still laughing mother, you like to tease me, don't you? Only sometimes, she said, not so often, Archie, but sometimes I just can't resist. An hour later, Ferguson went out into the yard with his book of the moment, Journey to the End of the Night, and sat down in one of the Adirondack chairs he and his father had repainted earlier in the summer, dark green, dark, dark green. But rather than open the book and learn more about Ferdinand's adventures at the Ford Motor Plant in Detroit, he just sat down there and thought as he waited for the first guest to arrive, marveling at the fact that he had once romped on a bed with a naked girl, had once been naked himself as he romped with a naked girl, and how perfectly comical it was that he should have no memory of having done that, whereas now he would have given almost anything to be with a naked girl. To be naked in bed with a naked girl was the single most important aspiration of his lonely, loveless life. Not one kiss or embrace in more than five months, he said to himself. A full spring and almost an entire summer of mourning for the absent, half-naked Anne-Marie Dumartin. And now he was about to meet the unremembered naked girl from his distant past, Amy Schneiderman, who no doubt had developed into a normal, healthy girl, which refers to comments made earlier. Boring and predictable, as most girls were, as most boys were, as most men and women were, but that couldn't be helped. And given that he hadn't even met her yet, he would just have to see what he would see. What he saw that afternoon was the person who became the next one, the successor to the crown of his desires, a girl who is neither normal nor not normal, but burning, unafraid, aware of the exceptional self she had been born with. And some weeks after their first encounter, as summer dissolved into autumn and the world around them suddenly turned dark, she became the first one as well, meaning that naked Amy Schneiderman and naked Archie Ferguson were no longer jumping on the bed but lying in the bed, rolling around under the covers. And for years after that, she would continue to bring him the greatest joys and the greatest torments of his young life, to be the indispensable other who dwelt inside his skin. But back to that Monday afternoon in September 1963, the Labor Day barbecue in the Ferguson's backyard, and the first glimpse he had of her as she stepped out of her parents' blue Chevrolet, the head of dirty blonde hair emerging from the back seat, and then the surprising fact of how tall she was, at least 5'8", perhaps 5'9", a big girl with an impressively handsome face, not pretty or beautiful, but handsome, solid nose, forthright chin, large eyes of still undetermined color, neither heavy nor slight of build, smallish breasts under a blue short-sleeved blouse, long legs, round ass encased in a pair of tight-fitting tan slacks, and an odd sort of glumping walk, torso pitched forward ever so slightly, as if impatient to be barreling forward, a tomboy's walk, he supposed, but fetching and unusual, signaling that she was someone to be reckoned with, a girl different from most 16-year-old girls because she carried herself without the slightest trace of self-consciousness. Her mother presided, his mother presided over the introductions, a handshake with the mother, slightly tense, a brief smile, a handshake with the father, relaxed, amiable. And even before he shook hands with Amy, he could sense that Liz Schneiderman didn't like his mother because she suspected her husband was half in love with her. 
which might have been true, considering the protracted hug of greeting Schneiderman gave the still beautiful 41-year-old Rose. And then Ferguson was shaking Amy's hand, her long and remarkably slender hand, determining that her eyes were dark green with some flecks of brown in them, observing that when she smiled, observing when she smiled that her teeth were a bit too big for her mouth, a fraction too big, and therefore arresting. And then he heard her voice for the first time, hello, Archie. And at that moment he knew, knew beyond any doubt that they were destined to be friends, which was a ridiculous assumption to make, of course, since how could he have known anything at that point? But there it was, a feeling, an intuition, a certainty that something important was happening and that he and Amy Schneiderman were about to set off on a long journey together. Bobby George was there that day, along with his brother. Bobby's one of Ferguson's oldest friends. His older, with, along with his brother, Carl, who was about to begin his sophomore year at Dartmouth. But Ferguson had no desire to talk to either one of them, not to the swift-thinking Carl, nor to the bird-brained, ever-joking Bobby. What he wanted was to be with Amy, the only other young person at the party. And so, within 45 seconds of shaking her hand, as a strategy to avoid having to share her with the others, he invited her up to his room. It was a somewhat impetuous thing to do, perhaps, but she accepted with a willing nod of the head, saying, good idea, let's go. And up they went to Ferguson's second floor refuge, which was no longer a shrine to Kennedy. During the 60 campaign, he had smeared all these things of Kennedy on the wall, uh, but a place crammed with books and records, so many books and records that the overcrowded shelves could no, lo no longer contain the collection, which was continuing to grow in piles stacked up against the wall nearest to the bed. And it pleased him to watch Amy nod again as she entered the room, as if telling him that she approved of what she saw, the scores of sanctified names and hallowed works, which she then proceeded to examine more closely, pointing to this one and saying, a hell of a good book, pointing to that one and saying, I still haven't read it, pointing to a third and saying, never heard of him. But before long, she sat down on the floor at the foot of the bed, which prompted Ferguson to sit down on the floor as well, face to face from her from a distance of three feet, leaning his back against the drawers of his desk. And for the next hour and a half, they talked, stopping only when someone knocked on the door and announced that food was being served in the backyard, which propelled them downstairs to join the others for a while as they ate hamburgers and drank forbidden beer in front of their parents, all four of whom failed to blink at this flouting of the law. And then Amy reached into her bag, pulled out a pack of Luckies, and lit up in front of her parents, who again failed to, failed to blink, explaining that she didn't smoke, but didn't smoke much, but loved the taste of tobacco after a meal. And once the meal and the cigarette had been taken care of, Ferguson and Amy excused themselves and took a slow walk around the neighborhood as the sun began to go down, eventually landing on a bench in the same small park where he had kissed Anne-Marie for the last time before she disappeared. And not long after Ferguson and Amy arranged to see each other again in New York on a Saturday later that month, they too began to kiss, an unplanned, spontaneous leap as one mouth latched onto the other, a delicious slobber of flailing tongues and clanking teeth, instant arousal in the rambunctious nether zones of their postpubescent bodies, kissing with such abandon that they might have eaten each other up if Amy hadn't suddenly pulled away from him and started to laugh.
a spurt of breathless, astonished laughter that soon had Ferguson laughing as well. Good grief, Archie, she said. If we don't stop now, we'll be ripping off our clothes in a couple of minutes. She stood up and extended her right arm to him. Come on, crazy man, let's go back to the house. They were the same age, or very nearly the same age, 200 months old as opposed to 198 months old. But because Amy had been born at the end of 1946, December 29th, and Ferguson at the beginning of 1947, March 3rd, she was a full year ahead of him in school, which meant that she was about to start her senior year at Hunter while he was still stuck in the trenches as a lowly junior. College was no more than a nebulous anywhere to him at that point, a far-flung destination that had yet to be given a name, where she had been studying maps for the better part of a year and was almost ready to begin packing her bags. She would be applying to several schools, she said. Everyone had told her she would need backups, second and third options, but Barnard was her first choice, her only choice, really, because it was the best college in New York, the all-girl twin of all-boy Columbia, and objective number one was to stay in New York. But you've been in New York all your life, Ferguson said. Wouldn't you like to try some other place? I've been to other places, she said, lots of other places, and every one of them is called Yon City. Have you ever been to Boston or Chicago? No. Yon City 1 and Yon City 2. LA? No. Yon City 3. Fine, but what about a school in the country? Cornell, Smith, one of those places. Green lawns and echoing quads, the pursuit of knowledge in a rustic setting. Joseph Cornell is a genius. The Smith brothers make excellent cough drops, but freezing my ass off for four years at Wilderness U isn't my idea of a fun time. No, Archie, New York is it. There's no other place. He had known her for approximately 10 minutes when they exchanged these words, and as Ferguson listened to Amy defend New York, declare her love of New York, it occurred to him that she herself was somehow an embodiment of her city, not only in her confidence and quickness of mind, but also and especially in her voice, which was the voice of brainy Jewish girls from Brooklyn, Queens, and the Upper West Side, a third-generation New York Jewish voice, meaning the second-generation of Jews born in America, which had a slightly different music from the New York Irish voice, for example, or the New York Italian voice, at once earthy, sophisticated, and brash, with a similar version to hard R's, but more precise and emphatic in its articulations. And the more he accustomed, accustomed himself to those articulations, the more he wanted to go on hearing them, for the Schneiderman voice represented everything that was not the suburbs, not his life as it existed now, and therefore the promise of an escape into a possible future, or at least a present inhabited by that possible future. And as he sat in the room with Amy, and later walked through the streets with her, they talked about any number of things, mostly about the roller coaster summer that had started with the killing of Medgar Evers and ended with Martin Luther King's speech, the endless tangle of a horror and hope that seemed to define the American landscape, and also about books and records, and also about the books and records on the shelves and floor of Ferguson's room, not to mention schoolwork, SATs, and even baseball. But the one question he did not ask her was, determined at all costs to refrain from asking, 
was whether she had a boyfriend, for he had already decided he was going to do everything in his power to make her the next one, and he had no interest in learning how many rivals were standing in his way. On September 15th, less than two weeks after the Labor Day barbecue, which was exactly six days before they were supposed to get together again in New York, she called him. And because he was the one she called and no one else, he understood that there was no boyfriend in the picture, <clears throat> no rival to be afraid of, and that she was with him now in the same way he was with her. He knew that because he was the person she chose to call when she heard the news about the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, and the murder of four little girls inside. Another American horror, another battle in the race war spreading across the South, as if the march on Washington two and a half weeks earlier had to be avenged with bombs and murder. And Amy was crying into the phone, struggling not to cry as she told him the news, and, he, and bit by bit, as she slowly pulled herself together, she began to talk about what could be done, about what she felt had to be done, not just laws passed by politicians, but an army of people to go down there and fight the bigots. And she would be the first one to join up. The day after she graduated from high school, she would hitchhike to Alabama and work for the cause, bleed for the cause, make the cause the central purpose of her life. It's our country, she said, and we can't let the bastards steal it from us. They saw each other the following Saturday and every other Saturday throughout the fall, Ferguson riding the bus from New Jersey to the Port Authority terminal and then taking the IRT Express to West 72nd Street, which he, where he would get off and walk the three blocks north and two blocks west to the Schneiderman's apartment on Riverside Drive and 75th Street, apartment 4B, which was now the most important address in New York City outings of various sorts, nearly always just the two of them together, occasionally with some of Amy's friends, foreign films at the Thalia on Broadway and 95th Street, Godard, Kurosawa, Fellini, visits to the Met, the Frick, the Museum of Modern Art, the Knicks of the Garden, Bach at Carnegie Hall, Beckett, Pinter, and Ionesco at small theaters in the village, everything so close and available, and Amy always knew where to go and what to do. The warrior princess of Manhattan was teaching him how to find his way around her city, which had rapidly become his city as well. Nevertheless, for all the things they did and all the things they saw, the best part of those Saturdays was sitting in coffee shops and talking. The first rounds of the ongoing dialogue that would continue for years, conversations that sometimes turned into fierce spats when their opinions differed the good or bad film they had just seen, the good or bad political idea one of them had just expressed, but Ferguson didn't mind arguing with her. He had no interest in pushovers, the pouting, nincompoop girls who wanted only what, he, what they imagined to be the formalities of love. This was real love, complex and deep and pliable enough to allow for passionate discord. And how could he not love this girl with her relentless probing gaze and immense booming laugh, the high-strung and fearless Amy Schneiderman, who one day was going to be a war correspondent or a revolutionary or a doctor who worked among the poor. She was 16 years old, pushing toward 17. The blank slate was no longer entirely blank, but she was still young enough to know she could rub out the words she had already written, 
rub them out, and start again whenever the spirit moved her. Kisses, of course. Embraces, of course. Along with the irksome fact that Amy's parents tended to stay at home on Saturday afternoons and evenings, which limited the opportunities for being alone in the apartment and led to much chilly weather necking on benches in Riverside Park. Some furtive back bedroom makeout splurges of parties given by Amy's friends, and twice, just twice, on the two occasions when her homebody parents stepped out for the evening, a chance to indulge in earnest, half-naked tumbles on the bed in Amy's room, marked by the old fear that the door would be flung open at the worst possible moment. The frustrations of not being fully in control of their lives, hormonal frenzies thwarted again and again by circumstances, the two of them growing ever more desperate as the weeks passed. Then, on a Tuesday night in mid-November, Amy called with good news. Her parents would be going out of town the weekend after next, three full days in distant Chicago to visit her mother's ailing mother, and with her big brother Jim not scheduled to fly in from Boston until the day before Thanksgiving, she would have the apartment to herself while, while her parents were gone. A whole weekend, she said. Just think of it, Archie, a whole weekend, and with no one in the apartment but us. He told, his, he told his parents that he and a couple of his friends had been invited to another friend's house on the Jersey Shore, a lie so ornate and nonsensical that neither one of them saw through it. When he left for school on the Friday in question, it seemed altogether appropriate that he should be carrying a small overnight bag with him. The, plane, that the plan was to leave for New York the instant school let out, and if he was lucky enough to catch the first bus, he would be at Amy's apartment by 4.30 or quarter to 5. And if he missed the first bus, and had to take the second by 5.30 or a quarter to 6. Another dull day in the corridors and classrooms of Montclair High School, concentrating on the clock as if he could will time forward by the sheer power of his thoughts, counting the minutes, counting the hours. And then, in the early afternoon, the announcement over the public address system that the president had been shot in Dallas, followed by another announcement sometime later that President Kennedy was dead. Within minutes, all activities of the, at the school came to a halt. Handkerchiefs and tissues appeared in a thousand pair of hands, in a thousand pairs of hands. Mascara was running down the cheeks of sobbing girls. Boys walked around shaking their heads or punching the air with their fists. Girls were hugging. Boys and girls were hugging. Teachers were sobbing and hugging, while others looked blankly at walls and doorknobs. And before long, students were massing in the gym and cafeteria. No one had any idea what to do. No one was in charge. All feuds and animosities had stopped. There, was no, there were no enemies anymore. And then the principal's voice came over the public address system again and announced that school was dismissed, that everyone could go home. The man of the future was dead. Unreal city. Everyone was going home, but Ferguson was carrying his overnight bag and walking to the Montclair bus stop to wait for the New York bus. He would call his parents later, but he wasn't going home. He needed to be by himself for a while, and then he needed to be with Amy, and he would stay with her as planned throughout the weekend. Two roads diverged in an unreal city, and the future was dead. Waiting for the bus, then mounting the bus, then mounting the steps of the bus, 
and looking for a seat, sitting down in the fifth row and then listening to the gear shift as the bus pulled away and headed for New York, then riding through the tunnel as a woman sobbed in the seat behind him and the driver talked to the passenger up front. I can't believe it. I can't fucking believe it. But Ferguson believed it, even though he felt entirely removed from himself, floating somewhere just outside his body, and at the same time, clear in his head, altogether lucid, with no inclination to break down and cry. No, all this was too big for that. Let the woman behind him sob her heart out. It probably made her feel better, but he would never feel better, and therefore he didn't have the right to cry. He only had the right to think, to try to understand what was happening, this big thing that resembled nothing else that had ever happened to him. The, the man talking to the driver said, reminds me of Pearl Harbor. You know, everything all calm and quiet, a lazy Sunday morning, people hanging around the house in their pajamas, and then bang, the world explodes, and suddenly we're at war. Not a bad comparison, Ferguson thought, the big event that rips through the heart of things and changes life for everyone, the unforgettable moment when something ends and something else begins. Was that what this was, he asked himself, a moment similar to the outbreak of war? No, not quite. War announces the beginning of a new reality, but nothing had begun today. The reality had ended, that was all. Something had been subtracted from the world, and now there was a hole, a nothing where there had once been a something, as if every tree in the world had vanished, as if the very concept of tree or mountain or moon had been erased from the human mind. A sky without a moon, a world without trees. The bus pulled into the terminal at 40th Street and 8th Avenue. Rather than walk through the underground passageways to 7th Avenue as he normally did on his trips to New York, Ferguson climbed the stairs and went out into the late November twilight. Walking east along 42nd Street as he headed toward his subway stop at Times Square, one more body in the early rush hour crowd, the dead faces of people going about their business, everything the same, everything different. And then he found himself pushing his way through clusters of motionless pedestrians gathered on the pavement, all of them looking up at the stream of illuminated type circling the tall building in front of them. JFK shot and killed in Dallas, Johnson sworn in as president. And just before he reached the steps, that would take him down to the IRT subway platform, he heard a woman say to another woman, I can't believe it, Dorothy. I just can't believe what my eyes are seeing. Unreal. A city without trees. A world without trees. He hadn't called Amy to find out if she had come home from school. It was possible that she was still with her friends, swept up in the confusion of the moment, overwrought, too shaken to have remembered that he was coming. And so when he pushed the buzzer of apartment 4B, it was unclear to him whether anyone would answer. Five seconds of doubt, 10 seconds of doubt, and then he heard her voice talking to him through the intercom. Archie, is that you, Archie? And a moment later, she buzzed him in. They spent several hours watching the coverage of the assassination on TV, and then, with their arms wrapped around each other in a tight embrace, they stumbled into Amy's room, lowered themselves onto her bed, and made love for the first time.
That's where the chapter ends. Thanks. I think we've got time for just a, 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 a brief chat. Okay. Um, uh, I guess this novel was clearly begun before the garish buffoon took his seat in the in I the started in an early 2013. So Obama had just started his second term. And yet, one of the things we get from this, you know, it is a profoundly political novel, and it is political uh, against the backdrop of both Vietnam and the civil rights movement. Um, you recognize in this novel that there have always been two Americas, that, that this, is not, this, is, this hasn't come from nowhere, no. that this is actually part of the tradition. Well, I feel that, um, uh, well, most of the political stuff is seen in the first cycle, Ferguson one, who's the most alert to what's going on of the four. Um, and Amy is an activist. I mean, she's very involved. But you're right. Uh, and this is uh, uh, the story of an America that seems to be repeating itself now. Not the same, exactly the same events or situations, but a country divided down the middle. That was the case in the 60s, mostly because of the war, but also because of civil rights and race conflicts. And now we're split, and now the two halves of the country no longer know how to talk to each other. And uh, I haven't seen this to this degree in 50 years, and maybe it's worse now than it was then. And, you know, I mean, there's something really powerful about the fact that the, the main character is called Ferguson, and that is obviously a name that has a kind of resonance now. Yes. Well, I was originally going to call the novel Ferguson, and then I couldn't because what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, midway through writing the book, uh, I couldn't use that title. It would be like calling the book Selma or Montgomery. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I, ha I had to come up with a different title. So we seem to be repeating ourselves. We seem to have slipped into a regressive way of looking at the world. And um, I shudder to think where we're going right now. And we said earlier that all of the Fergusons are writers and really held um, against Amy, who, as you say, is an activist who kind of blazes through the, the novel. Um, there's a line that Ferguson says, he says, uh, if when all is on fire, what good, are, what good is fiction? Yeah. Um, what good are words at a time like this? Can writers make a difference? And, and you know, I guess you are putting yourself forward as pre for pre the presidency of Penn next I'm going to run. I'm yeah. going to run. If they'll have me, I'll do it, and I'll gladly do it. But, but uh, I guess what else can, can writers do at this kind of time? They can do their work then, and they can speak out as citizens. But I would never tell any artist of any kind that he, he or she has to make overtly political work. Ultimately, all, all art is political, and it, it does um, reflect an ideology of one sort or another, whether consciously or not on, on the part of the artist, we belong to our times, we belong to the assumptions of our times and the conflicts of our times. Um, but I think the novel is a place where democracy necessarily thrives. The novel is a, a form of art that investigates the individual, the small, so-called small lives of ordinary people. And for anyone to 
pay attention to these small lives. And for anyone to read about these things is already to engage in an act of um, uh, human connection. And by connecting through art, I think we can begin to understand more about who we are and more about the world. And so if that's not overtly political, it's certainly a significant way to live your life on this planet. Um, I guess just finally, I wondered if you had started the next thing, that I spoke earlier about this kind of definitive finishing something feeling that this book has, and I was worried you were going to do a Philip Roth on us. I just uh, retire into the sunset. Well, he did that at 80. I'm 70. You've got a way to go. I, I'm, I'm going to keep <laughs> fighting. Um, but I don't know what it's going to be yet. I have a number of ideas, but I'm, I'm still a bit hollowed out from this book. It was an exhausting, thrilling uh, adventure for me, and um, now it seems my job is traveling around and doing things like this, which has been extremely interesting and enjoyable to me. And I've, I've usually shied away from it. And this time I, I wanted to embrace it. And I'm, I'm having a very good time in England. Well, I'm, I'm yeah. delighted. <laughs> I don't feel I speak for England. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ladies and gentlemen, Paul will be signing copies of uh, the book outside. Um, it's not exhausting, but it is thrilling and interesting. No, I'm not going to call it interesting. It's a marvellous, marvellous novel. It's the best novel I've read for many years. Um, incredibly moving. Please read it. Pass it on to your friends. Uh, love it as much as I do. Um, and, uh, and do come and say hi outside. Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.